magic of the sunstone, you're tuned into the Jewel Riders Archive. Hey Jewel fans, welcome to another episode of the Jewel Riders Archive podcast. Today we're continuing our discussion with Greg Torre, the toy designer and art director of the show. Alright, well, I guess it's time to leave reality and jump oh. into the wild magic and travel back to Avalon. <laughs> Actually, let me, let me ask you some questions first. Yes. I uh-huh. went through the materials that I have left, which are not that much, but I've got some things left. Um, and sure some odd little surprises. I sent you the picture of the one little dress I have. Now, yes. I know that I've got a couple of the unicorn horns that are in purple. They're just not. I thought they were in this box. They're not. But I found a couple other things. I wanted to, to just see, ask if you had them first. So one I know you don't have is an early drawing of a uh, line drawing of the Princess Guinevere doll. I'll probably just scan that and send it to you. Okay. Oh, that would be amazing. I do have um, also the they're the they're the paint master call out drawings for the two horses. Oh, fantastic! Uh, so they're really nice drawings of the horses, and then it's got all of the okay clear wings, you know, airbrush purple two seventy two forty seven C with gold glitter. It, they're just kind of neat for the people who are interested in toys. Um, mm-hmm. Those are just black and whites. Um, I've got, I, I was looking for some of the early stuff that, that, you know, changed. So, um, oh, do you, I've got, I've got nice photographs of the, uh, the child size, the power heart and the power sun and the power moonstone. Uh-huh. Um, these were record photos from inside Hasbro. Okay. Um, so they're not what was used in the catalog. They're at three quarter views. They're kind of they're kind of nice, but um, so anyway, I have those. I've got photographs of the first final Winter doll, but you know pre-production. So it's still a, a hand sample. Uh, you probably already have photographs of the, the zebra corn, right? Yes, we do. Yeah, but depending okay, on so which one it one is. I mean, I don't know which photograph you're looking at. We have it that's on like a grayish, purplish, kind of like those old Olin Mills type of backgrounds. Yes. Okay. So I've got okay. Okay. So I've got one that that had the mask off, and I've got one that's on a, a normal grayish background without all the little you know holes in it. That is just just a beauty shot of the uh, of the figure. Probably gotcha. what was used for the catalog. Actually, we, wait, wait, wait. It didn't show up in the catalog, did it? Or did no, it, it? did. It did. That. Yeah, they okay. um they they okay. have in the in one of the Toy Fair catalogs. It has Shadow Song with the what was to be released um, second wave toys. That's right. That's right. Okay. And in fact, I pulled those to see so that. I could talk intelligently when you ask me questions. <laughs> um, then, I, then I found some variations of Tamara's outfit where it's all white with um, and a, a fluffier Tamara and it's, and then it's got teal edging, but uh, we went away from that. And then I've got one, which is actually really cool too. That is a two, actually two different ones that, the fabric—it's a what we in the industry call crystal pleating, which is basically a very thin trico that's pleated. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't afford it. It's really cool. Um, but and there's a green version, a teal version, and then there's a white version. You'd probably get a kick out of these because mm. these, are, you know, obviously they're. In fact, one of them. Wait a second. Both of them are on Wonder Woman dolls instead of the final dolls. Ooh, I'd so love those, to see that because I love Wonder Woman and the Star Riders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, and, and you have to, you have to look. Well, actually, what they're, 
be back up. So Wonder Woman and Star Riders, of course, I, that tooling I used for the Disney musical Prince. Right. So it's the same bodies. And, and these are the Disney musical princesses' heads. Um, so I guess I should have said it that way. But I still think of it as as Wonder Woman first, because that's where I stole the tooling from. Um, and it, they never shipped, of course. There's another outfit here I want to send you that's a picture of. It is a asymmetric gown of a ball gown of um, Guinevere. It's actually really cute, but the reason I went away from it was I decided to put all asymmetric qualities on to help her look more odd and evil. So everything but her, her crown is asymmetrical. Um, and, and so when I did that, I realized, no, I need to make her symmetrical. So I went away from this, even though it's really cute. And it's also based on, in fact, it's a Jasmine doll, I can tell, because the uh, the skin tone and the earrings are still on it. Anyway, mm. so you probably get a kick out of that. There's an early version of, and these are really nice photographs, um, early version of, I forgot her name. Um, I'm blanking, dark-haired girl. Talon? Talon, thank you. Uh-huh. Sorry, and that wasn't her original name, which is why I'm still blanking on it. Alex. Okay. So, uh, interesting dress of hers. Alex, that's right, it was Alex originally. Mm-hmm. Interesting dress of hers. It's kind of 50s, but it's still fun. Um, early, or the very first really starting to look like Guinevere doll. Um, that would probably be fun to have. Um, also, I've got, and I think you guys may have this already, it's the official fact sheet for Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders. Do you have that? Well, it was a uh, what's on the front? Double-sided print. Okay, the front it looks like a TV screen with the Princess Guinevere characters on it, and they're with them holding holding up up their jewels. Yes. Yeah, we have. And on the back. Okay, so and you got all the information on the back. Yeah, we do. Uh huh. Okay. Okay, so you don't need that one. All right. Okay. so these other ones, what I'll do is I'll shoot pictures of them and send them just odds and ends for development along the way. I wanted yeah, to definitely. tell one story. I don't know if I told you this. Did I tell you this story before about the, uh, um, the heart stones and the, the power stones, really? So we were making these, and, and they were you know child size so that the children could pretend to be Guinevere or be Fallon or Tamara. And so it was a child-sized stone that that would also light up. And actually, when we made these, they were one of the very first times that Hasbro used technology where they did all of the engineering in the computer. Before, they just did drawings, and then it was sent off somewhere else. But this was the first time they created the whole 3D file um, of a Boy, they didn't do it very often in that time period. But these ones were all done in, in the computer. But the funny, the funny story is this: so they had to hit a certain price point. It's always about price point, of course. And, <laughs> yeah, the engineers came to me one day. We saying we got a problem. We have to to get you know 0.2 percent out of the margin, and the only way we can do that is to drop out the switch that turns it off and on. Um, and, and so I think we've just destroyed the whole product. And I said, well, well, hold on a second. So I talked him through. I said, can you give me just a, you still have a button there. So if I push, can you make it? So if you push the button, it just pushes a leaf spring, makes the connection and turns it on. They said, yeah, we can afford that. I'm like, okay, don't worry about it. Oh, but management will never accept that because it's not as good. I said, hold on, just relax. I will sell this in. And so I went into the meeting and said, hey, we, uh, we've got the new jewel stones. They're all set, and they're in cost, and we were able to improve them at the same time. So instead of just hurting them off and on, now you can flash them. I'm sitting here going, flash, 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 flash. That's upper management <laughs> with these things, which you couldn't do before, technically. Um, and they were like, hey, okay. And then the engineers just kind of shook their head at me like, He's weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but it, it's kind of sometimes you just got to reposition things and look at things differently and go, well, actually, we can make that better. You know, it's cheaper. So I thought that was a fun story. I, it's a shame those never came out because I think kids would have loved them. Um, we found my granddaughter. My granddaughter is not quite two yet. And she was her favorite cartoon is Moana. She loves Moana. And the other day she was taking the ring, her mom's ring, and holding it up in the air. And we're like, what are you doing? She's like, I forgot what word she used, but basically she was playing that end scene. She's not even two. And she's playing that end scene at the movie where Moana holds up the heart of Afiki, Rafiki or whatever its name was. Tafiti, Tafiti, that's it. You'd think I'd know the name by now. <laughs> after watching it. And, and she was trying to say what she was doing. I finally, I finally figured it out and said, wait a second, that's, that's Moana. And she's holding up the stone. And she goes, yes, Moana, Moana. But it's like, and so we actually ordered her a necklace so she could do that with. Oh, but cute. I thought it was really funny. Yeah, so she's gonna have, she's gonna love that. It light, it lights up too. She's gonna love it when it shows up in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But it was neat that you know, even she's not even two and she's already playing that. And so I really wanted the kids to have sunstones that, and, and you know, heartstones and moonstones that they could go play with. So it's a shame those didn't happen. But at least, at least for the collectors, there. There's there was a set a couple sets of the uh, prototypes that are out there, so right, right, and um, we are lucky fun. enough to have one of those in our collection. We I have the Heartstone, and as Tamara is my favorite col- character, and pink is my favorite color, I'm rather excited that I have that one. I want say I have a Sunstone or a Moonstone. You probably have a moonstone. I think I have a moonstone. You know, the sunstone was part of that very early auctions that started coming out. And I remember, because this is what I remember, this is my memory of it. When it went up for auction, it sold for really cheap. But at the yeah. time, I really, we weren't ready to actually invest in this. So, like, you know, we really hadn't thought about the archive. It was just Chris and I, you know, just like remembering, like, oh, like, you know, remember that was fun times you know, jewel writers and things like that. And then we saw that this prototype of this toy that had never shipped was on auction. And I remember calling him and being like, wow, there's this thing. He's like, okay, well, are you going to bid on it? I was like, yeah, I'm going to bid on it. I'm going to put it in a back bid of $75. And I was like, I'm debating though too, because that's so much. I'm like, I don't know. Do I really <laughs> want to spend that? And, you know, it's funny because, I mean, later auctions, those things sold for hundreds of dollars. But I think that that was one of the first auctions that no one really knew about. So whoever yeah. I was bidding against won it for a mere $75. Yep. You know, but that's the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Greg, when you're talking about this, um, you know, I, I just love when you're talking about your passion and about why it is that you did and do what you do as a toy creator, because, you know, as an artist and as a designer, you have a vision to want to create this product and you want to share the magic of that storytelling piece from the series or movie or whatever it is. And you want to bring it to fruition in a 3d, you know, handheld tangible item that a child can play with. And I, and I just love the enthusiasm that you share in those stories as you're talking about, being in those board meetings and, and, you know, really telling people, oh, but this could still happen. Like we could still make this and it'll be a valuable product and it will be something that will be profitable like that. That's just amazing to me. I love hearing those stories. So, so along those lines, one of the funny things I'm dealing with is the last two months or so, I've actually been working on Disney and Marvel product that oh, is interesting. for, yeah, I, actually it's nice because this is the first time I officially got to work on Marvel product. I've done DC, but, all, well, actually, I'm sorry, no, I got to do some Spider-Man stuff, but very rarely. But, um, so I'm I'm designing all sorts of stuff, and, and as, particularly with the Disney characters, which I have such a passion for because I've been doing it for so long, and, and the funny thing is there's people at Disney who are correcting my work or at least really? you know, telling me this won't work because of you know, blah, 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 blah. And I had to send back a nice letter saying, okay, 
Yeah, I couldn't say, look, moron, you need to go look at the toy industry and see what's out there because you don't even know what you're talking about. So I'm going to teach you right now. I couldn't say it like I had to say, okay, so here's the version that Hasbro put out that does this, this and this and how it's constructed. And here's the play pattern. Now, ours has this play pattern, so it's not in competition. It's constructed this way, blah, blah. I had to go through that with like 10 different items. And the irony is I kept thinking of is, I care more about the integrity of those characters than every one of those people that I'm dealing with, but they'll never understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're Disney employees and they, they think they've got the, you know, the market on it, but it's like, I'm sorry, there's things I would never do with, with any of the Disney characters because that's not the character. The character doesn't do that. Like I, the funny thing too is because we showed, we showed some of these designs to, to Walmart because this product was, made for Walmart with the Disney and Marvel license. And one of them was a big, it was a inflatable ball that is a sprinkler kind of dorky, but it has great artwork on it because I took care of it. And one of the funny things is, so I did, I did Spider-Man one. And so there's a guy, Spider-Man on one side, he looks like he's spraying the water out of his, like his web shooters. It's Mm -hmm. really cool. And on the other side of the Spider-Man one is Venom. And he's got one shooting out of his mouth, and the other's like shooting out of his tongue, because it's really <laughs> long. It's, and it's cool. And it's, it's like, okay, you got your good and bad side. So I did Ariel. And Ariel was really cute. I have one kind of spraying out of Ariel's hand, and then the other one's out of... Um... Oh, you're such a guppy. Um... Flounder. Flounder, thank you. Uh, Flounder's mouth, and it's really adorable. And it's uh, it's kind of like that scene where she's in the grotto, and they kind of do like a um, a fisheye lens on her, even though mm-hmm. it's animation. Uh, it's really cute, and it's on the ball. Looks great. Looks like she's coming at you. And then on the other side, I actually did put Sebastian and three of the fish that are you know. Uh, the flute plays the flute, the flute, and so I put those ones up there, and um, and then two of them were spraying the water out, and it's that little scene. My boss didn't like it, and he's probably never even seen the movie, and so he had me put Ursula there, Mm. and so I, I did one with Ursula, I made it perfectly correct, and I put the water spraying out of. Flotsam and Jetsam. And that's what my boss wanted in the presentation. And the Disney, there, the Walmart buyer took one look at that and said, these, these are all great, except we are not doing Ursula on this. The little girl doesn't want, Earth, no one wants to play Ursula. And, and my boss actually this one time was like, okay, yeah, Greg, I'm on the phone. It was a phone meeting. He said, yeah, Greg told me not to do that. Um, but I didn't know any better. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, this is the one I designed that does this, 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 because it's all about your friends when it's a girl play pattern. And they're like, yes, show us, send us that one. So it, it was just kind of funny that, you know, I'm, I'm very careful about these characters, whether they're Disney characters, whether they're Gwen. To me, it, it's bringing the character to life. And, and, and being true to that character. Right. And, you know, a company like Disney, that's a perfect example of a company that has great assets. And actually, I was talking to another friend who is um, the web mistress of a princess blog. And I was just talking to her about the integrity of the Disney films. You know, why is it a generation of children continue to watch a movie from 1937, but yet we can't even get some teenagers to watch another live action movie from 1937. It's like, what makes those Disney movies so timeless? And I think that it has a lot to do with the marketing. It has a lot to do with the fact of the integrity of the characters and that, you know, they keep it fresh. And it's just like creators like you that are keeping that product alive. Like you can still go out and you can find merchandise that has that favorite, you know, whether it's a Disney princess, a Star Wars character, a Marvel character, like you can still find those, you know, there's plenty of other cartoon characters out there that I think are just as iconic, whether it's, you know, Popeye or Felix the Cat or Betty Boop. But I feel like there's also just much more of a niche fandom for those characters 
And I think that it's not as diversified. Like I was even thinking of Wizard of Oz. Um, I don't know if maybe, you know, you were ever involved with this, but I know at Mattel they had done right around the time of like the Disney princesses, they were doing some Wizard of Oz release toys and they made dolls, you know, from the Barbie um, molds and they made games and things like that. Of course, this was also when they had the Warner Brothers store, but it's like, you know, they tried with Wizard of Oz and I think that that still you know, stays a movie that is fresh and evergreen, but it definitely doesn't have as much appeal, I feel, at least marketing value, as, as something like Disney or Marvel, unfortunately. Wish it did. Some of that comes down just to it being animation. And animation can remain, like storybooks, a very timeless-looking medium. You know, even though Snow White is obviously looking very 30s, as opposed to somebody like Aurora, who looks very 50s, Mm-hmm. Those yeah. those do not age the same way as seeing like a physical person with you know pin curls or <laughs> you know high waisted right. pants on a man. Like, it... remind me to come back to the uh, Wizard of Oz question. But but actually, the funny thing is, I I had the same thought process of what you're talking about now. And and yes, it does have to do with a lot of what people do to keep the integrity of the characters, but. I couldn't stand watching Moana yet again the other day, and, and my granddaughter wanted to watch something, and I'm like, all right, kiddo, you're going to watch something else. And I put on Lady and the Tramp. Now, we've been watching mostly CG animation stuff because she loves – her favorite movies are Moana and Bolt, which is kind of an interesting choice. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, I made the coolest Bolt he was dead on. Never hit the market. But anyway, fun, oh. fun product. That was, in fact, I wish I could find, I've got a prototype around the house someplace. And it's like, I want to find that for my granddaughter because she would just, she'd never put it down again if I gave it to her. But okay, <laughs> back on track, right? So I put on, I put on Lady and the Tramp. And of course, it doesn't have the full roundness of CG. It doesn't have the shadows in the background, but, and it's very slow at the beginning. <laughs> yes. But the moment you got into the scene where where Tramp took Lady to the Italian restaurant, hey, Butch is back, you know, that scene is magic, absolute, pure magic. Everything they pull off in that, you know, all the way down to, you know, Sucking on both sides uh, uh, of the spaghetti strand and then one meatball left and nosing it over to other people. There was so much tenderness, love and magic in that scene. And I know that they redid it and I don't even want to see the redo, but because I, I can't imagine they could have recreated the magic of that. But there is magic in those old Disney classics that just can't be beat. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a member at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and I've had the opportunity to hear from some of the children of the nine old men who are the animators on those films and yes. see, and see displays of their artwork. And it's, it's just incredible what they could do. The yes. amount that they could do with just a line or, uh, I mean, it's a true, it's a true art form and it's a true, like, lost art form, unfortunately, at this point. Yeah, it is. I um I actually was fortunate. I got to hear five of the nine old men talk before they. Oh, that's awesome! And one of them was actually Mark Davis in a small room, a small um a classroom. They were actually they were going to these different universities and they were hunting for talent and getting people to be interested in applying to Disney and stuff, and they brought Mark Davis, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course <laughs> I'm going. Um, I wasn't <laughs> in college at the time, and just, he was just, it was just amazing, and it, and you see the work that he's did, and just, it just, anyway, the, those men were amazing pioneers that just, I, I'm still in awe of their work. I'm still watching it going, oh my gosh, that, that's magic. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. going to art school, um, since you kind of brought up the subject with regards to people who you look up to and whatnot, um, a lot of this came because during my cinematography classes, we would have to watch examples of classic film. 
And we would give examples of, you know, directors that inspired us or something to that effect. And while I can't remember his name, unfortunately, I give the example of the director. Um, I believe that he was German, I want to say. Um, he was the director from Dracula. And then he later went on to also direct um, I Love Lucy. And the thing is, is that whenever we would talk about classic media, whether it was classic television, classic movies, the rest of the class just was not interested. Like they just wanted to talk about the modern movies, the, you know, special effects of the CG and whatnot. And meanwhile, I couldn't hear enough about the practical effects or about the classic cinematography or the pioneers. And so I don't want to say that it's a dying generation because there are still people out there, young people who are growing up on these movies who are inspired. And yes, there is, you know, modern mediums that people are also inspired by, as you mentioned, you know, Moana and other, you know, new type of ambitions of animation and, you know, using that art form, like, you know, even like stop motion, you know, that that's another art form that just doesn't seem to be as mainstream, but it's still very powerful as far as storytelling. I think the thing is, is that, you know, no matter what type of art it is, it could be live action, it could be animation, CG, of course, that is animation, I meant like hand drawn animation, you know, whatever it is, it needs a strong story. And as kind of a good segue, um, right now for the archive, we are reading the Avalon Web of Magic book series that was inspired by Princess Guinevere. And I just finished book two. And I, I just filmed something on my phone and I was going to post it on social media, but I am literally crying. Like there's this juvenile book series and at the end of the book, the way that the characters interacted and the way that they had, you know, a 180 degree spin on the character, the, you know, emotions of that character and the way that they changed, it literally made me cry. Now, of course, those characters are also based upon the characters that you guys originally created for Joel Riders. So even though they're renamed, as you mentioned, you know, it might have been Harmony and Alex, they later became Tamara and Fallon. I mean, these are renamed Adrian and Emily, but still it's the same principle. So for me, like, even though her name is Emily, I still see and hear Tamara in this character. And the interactions for them just touched me so emotionally. And that is, as a child, why we connected with these types of stories, why we love Princess Guinevere so much. It's the storytelling aspect. And, and Guinevere, from the beginning, in, in Ro- Robert's vision, was he wanted a fuller, richer world. He wanted that. He wanted he he wanted you to see that that you were only still getting a glimpse of the world that was much bigger than what you saw on the screen. And and he achieved that obviously because of the fan following. But that was something he had in mind that he tried to do. And and I in you know up front and he succeeded, which was really neat. And it, and it's interesting because you can take that approach. Or you can take the approach of, oh, it's for kids, so just slap it together, and which drives me insane. <laughs> yeah, um, I can, and, and I, I, can I do imagine. a lot of work with kids. Yeah, and it just—I'm just amazed how many people can't talk to children or have no clue in the world what children want. And I and I've got people that are you know haven't talked to a child in 20 years, trying to tell me no kids don't want it that. And it's like, when was the last time you talked to a child? You know, just right. And that's the irony of that. Me. And it just, you know, yes. And, and you, it's, you've got people making decisions that don't, you know, like, no, change it to Ursula. A little girl doesn't want Ursula. And there <laughs> was another thing. There was a, a variation of that, too. I was I was making a battle boat, which were really cool. And it was, it was battle boats for Spider-Man and for Iron Man and because they're starting to get expensive, no one wants to buy a two-pack anymore. It gets too expensive. So I made a target you could shoot at, and if you filled it up, it would get top-heavy and fall over. And, of course, on the target was either Venom or it was Ultron. So you got the same fun play, but if you bought two of them, then you could shoot each other, and you're back to square one. It's just a lower price point. And they were like, we'll make an aerial one. Well, no. if a girl wants that play pattern, she's going to go get a Spider-Man one. Right, she's going to buy the Spider-Man one. And so what I developed instead was, I called it Ariel's Misting Paradise. 
And it was a cute little floating lounge with lots of underwater flowers and aerial on it and in nice lavenders and hot pinks and, and teal, mainly teal. But then it had one flower that you could push on, you could pump on it. And then out of the top of it, kind of like the top of your seat, water would mist out. So you got the fun of squirting water, water play in the pool, but in a way a girl would appreciate it more being with her friend Ariel rather than trying to squirt another boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so really? funny, your imagination. It's just like, I would have never thought of that, but looking back at it now, I might not necessarily have wanted that chair, but I think that always looking you know, at the Disney princess toys for me, I mean, I never wanted the boy characters. I always, you know, whether it was on a happy meal or in the toy aisle, I wanted the girl toys, but you know, I, I just, I love it when you talk about all this random stuff and someone could just tell you, Oh, this is our idea. And then you just come up with this other idea of like, okay, well, this is what, you know, what we're going to create and this is what we'll sell. I mean, you're obviously just fantastic at what your, what your career is. I think like a child and thank you for saying that I, I, I can still think that way and I'm still very in touch with kids. I'm actually very disappointed with, with, with the quarantine. Um, <laughs> I ended up, I, I ended up with two different schools that I was working after school programs with that these kids just, just wanted someone to have fun and pay attention with them. And so I started doing becoming their program person. So every Monday, I would go to one school and, and do a program and every Tuesday, the other school and simple things like today we're going to build paper airplanes, but you know, <laughs> and I would go through some of the science and stuff on it. And also some of the emotional things about, you know, it's kind of like air pressure, you know, air pressure is what keeps it up in the air. And that's kind of like your friends, your friends are the things that hold you up, you know, and I, I always, would tie those lessons in together. And so unfortunately having, you know, all, all of this quarantine now has, has interrupted that, but at least with my Sunday school class, the funny thing is now I'm doing videos for them. So I oh did video gosh. number four today. <laughs> yes. And actually you'll get a kick out of this because it, it was, I was going through the story of the, the men on the road to Emmaus in the gospel of Luke. And mm-hmm. so one of the men was Aladdin. The other one was um, Moses, the Moses figure from um, Prince, of Egypt. Uh, Prince of Egypt. And then actually in another scene, I ended up having. Um, I forgot her. Princess Jasmine and and bell was in there dressed in biblical robes and things like that it was just really <laughs> funny that i i i specifically used aladdin and moses to see if anyone noticed <laughs> um but it's been funny i did it was funny cuz i just did only one with the toys so far which is kind of just to break it all up but it's it's all about in this case it's all about how do you how do you teach children something but you have to find a way to relate it to something in their world and then it'll make sense um, and that's almost definitely yeah you know and uh, you know you, uh-huh no, 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 go ahead go ahead well i was gonna say you started off the conversation with talking about the power jewels and you know i have to tell you i i don't know if we had already covered this in the previous conversations i have two thoughts here so the first thought is it is a little, I, I don't want to say it leaves me dumbfounded. I mean, I'm sure there was a plan in there somewhere, but it's just like the jewels were such a core piece and element of the show. I don't, well, then again, we didn't really have like toys, as you could say. Like, I mean, you know, where other series have more toys that are associated with like role play toys. Jewel writers never really had role play toys. It was just dolls. And then there were some paper goods that were created. You know, that was the core products that were created. But it's like, why was there not the jewels or a jewel box, like the one that came with the Deluxe Guinevere, you know, where you could put your jewels in? Like, why was that not part of the very first assortment? Like, why was that not the very first, you know, toy treatment created, essentially? I, I think it's a very good question. And, and there's a clear answer, which is 
small dolls sell better. So you, we started with the small dolls, and the small dolls should have been the hook to get the children interested. And once again, if the show had been on consistently, we would be having a different conversation right now. Right. Yeah, but it was the right thing to do. It was actually, actually, in this case, the marketing people at Kenner did the right thing, which is you start on your strongest foot, which is the small dolls, and the next wave of product included the child play because the child play toys typically sell less. I mean, even like the Moana necklace we just bought. I mean, yes, they shipped them. They sold a bunch of them, but not anywhere near the amount of fashion dolls they sold. So, right. And I can understand if, that. Yes. And, and, and in my mind, my plan eventually was to do more. I wanted to do you know, like the headpieces with the flip down visors. I wanted to do, awesome. yeah, and the gauntlets, and and mm-hmm. I wanted to do Merlin's box too. Okay, yeah, um, like Merlin's box as a jewelry box for kids would have been such a great oh, piece. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, and the other reason why is because a lot of the people that we talk to when they're reminiscing, that seems to be the thing that's consistent with all of us. We all made our own form of the jewels, which I guess, you know, even though something never shipped, the thing is, is that it sparked our creativity. So whether people were making these out of resin, out of wood, out of paper, whatever resource they had, we all created our own versions of the jewels. And so it brought out the creative side in us. And and I think that from a connection with a show where we have enough dedication to it that we want to make our own stuff. That says a lot, you know, and I, I totally agree. And something that I wanted to also say, um, again, I don't know if we had talked about this. I know that at, during the previous conversation at length, we talked about the Disney classic collection. Um, one quick thing about it, when you were talking about the mask set. So right now when you're saying, you know, no kid wants to play with Ursula, no, you know, this or that. Um, I was that kid, though, that I really wanted the villains as dolls. So when Mattel released those mask sets of the stepmother from Cinderella, of Maleficent, of the Evil Queen, I loved them. I wish that they had been dolls by themselves. I don't, you know, I love the fact that they had masks. But I took that idea and I made my own, I guess you could say like paper doll versions of them, but I put them on my actual like fashion dolls. I made King Triton and Ursula for the for the Little Mermaid dolls. Now, I know that those were under Tycho and not Mattel, but I was trying to create something similar like what Mattel was doing, but for my Tycho Little Mermaid dolls. So you also inspired me in that sense, where I was creating <laughs> King Triton and Ursula as like a, a mask set that you could put on your dolls. I did the same thing as a child. If I didn't have the toy of whatever character it was, I would make it. I would... I would and, and of course, you know, at that age and with my abilities, they were horrible little things. But in my mind, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was that character. And, and I had so much fun doing that. And I occasionally I run across one going, oh, that's a little weird. Oh, yeah, it was one of those. Uh, and I don't know if I did. Did I ever tell you the stories about the big elaborate backyard battles I would have with my kids and the toys? No. <laughs> what what <laughs> happened? Okay, well, and this is a longer story, but so my daughter would play anything with me. I could get her to play boy toys, girl toys, didn't matter. So we would play Princess Guinevere one day, we'd play Barbies another day, we'd play Hot Wheels, and occasionally we would do G.I. Joe's, and I would set up these big adventures and um and then we would pick figures and we would go all the way through it and i sometimes i would shoot a bunch of pictures of it and like i've got one that i shot a bunch of pictures of which was from one of my favorite heroes which was the phantom uh, very obscure but um he, he was a, he was you know a hero in the jungle and so we we did this elaborate like six different scenes and traps that they had to get through. It was almost like playing King Solomon's Mimes. And <laughs> my daughter and I would play these. And it took, it would take us, you know, actually it would take us about two hours to set up and another 
at least an hour to play all of the scenes. And you take whatever you have and you'd make like a big giant, you, you take a, a net from a volleyball net and you take giant rubber spiders. And that was the giant spider pit. Don't go in there. <laughs> Bad guys would slip and they would get stuck in there. And then, and then I, I had a bunch of big gyms. Big Jim was only like 10 inches as opposed to G.I. Joe at roughly 12 inches. And But I had Big Jack. Now, hopefully I'm not offending anyone by this, but Big Jack was the African-American figure. But he was the perfect size next to G.I. Joe of pygmies. And I had a few of them. So I dressed <laughs> him up as pygmies. And so the pygmies took out some of the bad guys on one of the trails. And it was always just building whatever you had. into. Actually, we took the sandbox. And um, and then we had like scorpions come out of that. And there was something they had to find in the sandbox. And we did big, elaborate battles. My son didn't grow up with that. I tried, but he he was he was he played boys toys only, but he was very much into Pokemon. So and I couldn't get him into G.I. Joe. What I finally did was. I realized, okay, battles, Pokemon. Let me if I if I put it in that scenario, maybe he'll get it. So one day I told him, I said, okay, here's a box of superheroes. They were all like GI Joe size superheroes. I said, okay, pick ten. What am I picking them for? We're gonna have a giant adventure. Pick ten that you think will survive. And then he picked the ten, and I went and finished the scenarios. And then I went up and I handed him a little scroll, and it was by the Riddler. They didn't make a Riddler. Yes, I made my own Riddler. <laughs> and um, and it was a note from the Riddler, and he had to go to the basement and find something. So And then, like, one of the things ended up being a wreath that was on the floor. And, um, and I had some extra vines and things attached, and Poison Ivy was there. So when they got when his superheroes got close to it, Poison Ivy attacked. And then I had to say, okay, who's going to attack Poison Ivy? Who's your hero on this one? And then we would do shot for shot, just like um, just like Pokemon, like Freeze Ray, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, stinging, you know, carnivore, carnivore plant, you know, and and we did all these different scenarios, um, you know. He, one of the scenarios was a land, was a whole, well, I would say a place that was populated with robots. So it was in a big attack of the robot war. And um, it just, all the way along, I did manage to kill off about five of his superheroes along the way. You know, just because <laughs> I had the right, you know, freeze ray against um, uh, Johnny Lightning. Not Johnny Lightning, I'm sorry. Johnny Lightning. No, no, I wanted Johnny Quest. Love Johnny Quest. <laughs> uh, uh, flame, the flame guy. Oh, the torch. torch. The human the torch, yeah. Torch. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the other Johnny I was thinking of. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so I managed to wipe him out with a with a freeze ray, but but it took that interaction. That's what my son needed to be able to understand how to play GI Joes. If I did it in a battle hit battle you know, going back and forth scenario, he could understand it. And we did this a few times and had just, you know, we would play for hours on these. And, um, and I, he killed off, you know, like three dozen bad guys, which were cannon fodder, but still, you know, just to have the fun of it. Um, Those are such wonderful memories. And I can say, you know, it's interesting how I think that if you just have a creative gene in you, it's very similar. I mean, there, there's so many stories that I could just start rattling off as well. I'll just kind of give a quick highlight. But when you're talking about those moments that you spent with your children, it was very similar with my dad and I. And he is of the same generation where he grew up with action figures. And it's really thanks to him that I even got into collecting. So whether it was collecting dolls, comics, books, you know, whatever it might be, he's the one that really inspired me for that. And similarly, we would also play where I was Batman. And so I had a cape, again, the importance of role play toys. And my stepmom would leave notes and she'd be like, oh, like, you know, this toy is hidden here or this is hidden here. And you'd have to go around the house and look for those things. And so that was my Batman play. Um, similarly, you know, when um, Chris and I were young, again, the power of creating toys when you don't have them 
you know, we were thinking about, you know, branded Lego toys before they even made these cross promotioned, you know, sets. We were making Jewel Rider Legos. Like we used our castle sets of the Legos to pretend like they were Jewel Riders. And they even had like a little dragon wagon and everything that we played with. And we had the Merlin character. And again, it was uh-huh. just you use what you have to tell the story. And, and as I said, you know, that's why we just love these properties so much is because of the storytelling and, and because of how strong it is, you know? Yes. So yes. speaking of, um, I, I did want to start talking about the, um, the development of the actual toys. So when we were talking about the, um, the first wave and, you know, we've talked a little bit about pre-production and I think at length, we kind of talked about, you know, obviously your passion and why you do what you do and, from the history that you've had with Mattel and with Disney into Hasbro and Kenner and how that all kind of worked together. Um, but regarding the first wave of the dolls and of the toys, you know, when you were first tooling them, I mean, obviously you had an idea of what the product is that you wanted to create. And right now we're organizing a lot of the photos and, and a lot of the assets that we have at the archive preparing for the 25th anniversary to tell a comprehensive story of not only how the toys came about, but what was really the thinking behind it. And I think that I have to remember sometimes, you know, when a prototype is created, that's kind of just, okay, we're, we're giving you, you know, an idea of what this toy line could possibly look like. You know, this is obviously not the finished product, but I look at some of the toys from like Enchanted Camelot with like the pink unicorn and there's this like sequin saddle over it. And it's a very ornate toy. And I think, you know, well, would this have ever really been produced like this? And and the answer is, you know, no, it probably would have been changed or maybe it would have become plastic pieces. But, you know, it's it's still interesting to kind of see the ideas that you had when you were creating these toys and seeing photos of them. So, you know, from the transition from Enchanted Camelot to the final, you know, first wave of toys, what was kind of the story there? What was the timeline? When did that start? You know, how long or, you know, did it take kind of, kind of those general questions. And and timeline is key because what had, we talked about this before, but let me, let me, go over it again just for, for the context of this this you know audio what Kenner did in their process was they would identify different properties that they thought would make a good toy and then they would put together a mock toy line of what the what it would be and I was asked to do enchanted Camelot and I was asked to do Princess Tanko, and there was a third one that we already had done. Someone else in my department did it. I don't remember who it was or what the property was. Totally forgot what it was. Um, and we showed those three or possibly four different concepts to the kids, and then the kids would rate them. You know, which one you mo- was your favorite? Which one you most likely to buy? Which one are you least likely to buy? And from from that data. With, you know, with strangers, but with kids, um, they would say, okay, this is strong enough to continue. In making those models, you don't have a lot of time. So do you have the photograph of the – wait, let me make sure I have it in front of me because I pulled out a few things. So one of the things that we did was this beautiful castle that expanded up. And um, it's like it, – it, it folded down into just like a keep because of course they didn't have the castle designed at the time and uh looking through yeah and i think that that's key for people who are listening to this to realize a lot of the times when you're looking at these products those prototypes you know whether it's the jewelry castle box or it's the enchant toys like yes they don't look like the final designs but that's because the show had not been designed yet like this was just to get as you said you know to get that data yeah, this is like yes. a rough concept, basically. So I've got three images, and I thought I might have seen these already on your site. One is the castle. It's a lavender castle. It's all opened up, and it's got uh, like a frilly bed, and I'm not now. Yes. I can't remember what the other frilly thing is. Okay, okay. So you got that one, and then there was one that showed the animals, which you know, and this one had the 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 purple. Uh, lion and it had the wolf 
and it had the first version of Sunstar, and then the baby animals. Do you have that one? Yes, yeah. that's the Enchanted yeah. Camelot kit bash, correct? Correct. Okay. So correct. So, and I actually made all of those, and and then there's the figures, and it was a set of four figures. So when it came to making those figures, of course, I read everything that Robert had given us on Enchanted Camelot. What you know, went through it all, and and the styling was okay, but it it was honestly styling that was done by animators. And my background was costume design specifically. And so the costumes weren't good enough for me. I wanted something grander, something better. And also, I needed it to look different than all the other cutesy, fluffy things that were on the market. I mean, if you looked at what was out there, I mean, there was Rose Petal Place, which was adorable. Didn't last very long, unfortunately. I'm sorry, I have wait, a friend no, who's no, really into collecting those. Yeah, and and Peppermint Rose was the one I was originally thinking. I worked on that at Mattel too. Um, oh, and then there, I, have, I have this wonder. I have this wonderful Peppermint Rose um, advertisement with this just beautiful art. I'll have to scan I think that. I know for which you. one you mean. Okay, I, I think I I know that one. You know, Greg, while you're rattling off all these um, these properties, something interesting for me just to kind of quickly interject, um, as people have, you know, gathered, I am a huge Disney fan. And aside from the influences of my father of trying to, you know, get me to watch Batman and other superheroes that were close to his heart, there was really one other property as a child um, that I really gravitated towards, and that was like Power Rangers. I also liked Wizard of Oz. But Guinevere was the very first property that really drew my attention kind of away from Disney. So there's this kind of dark spot where it went from, you know, 89 during the Renaissance of Little Mermaid all the way through Aladdin. Even when there was Aladdin on, like I still liked Power Rangers and Aladdin at the same time. And then 94 happened and my dad was just all over Lion King and I just it was okay. I think I started liking Barbie more at that time. But then in 95, when Chris showed me Joel writers, like I just didn't pay attention to Disney. <laughs> like, I mean, I still watched Pocahontas and I liked Hunchback, but it's like straight there for about like two or so years. It was just kind of like, eh, like I like this property more than I like Disney. And that says a lot. Yeah. And frankly, as soon as they hit Pocahontas, I, I think they, they peaked just before Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame was like, what? Well, uh, see, I as a child, it's, it's very <laughs> different. But I think that, you know, now as an adult, you watch it and you're like, wow, this is such a beautiful piece of artwork, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But child storytelling wise, it's all off. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. They, they missed. It was it was just kind of a, a missed mark. I mean, it was I mean, the story is, is about lust. You know, and they're trying right. to show it to the kids. And it's like, oh, <laughs> right. okay. But back to Guinevere, what I wanted, I wanted, I wanted a doll line that had some of the really cool parts of Camelot, which in my mind, Camelot is armor. Camelot is ex, like the movie Excalibur by John Borman. Yeah. Um, all of that beautiful, glistening, gleaming armor. I know that armor was, you know, 500 years later than <laughs> Arthur would have been, but it looked great. And so I wanted to get that fun gleaming armor, but I wanted to still keep it fun and soft for girls. I was trying to kind of walk that line between of fashion action. And so these models that I created, I'm looking at a picture of them now, we're trying to get that blend of fluffiness and metallic armor, which had really never been done before. I mean, there was a version where they put these kinds of fabrics together on. It was a robot line that was an offshoot of Barbie. It's and I Spectra forgot it's and the Shimmerons. That's it. Yes. Technically, they used the same fabrics, but they didn't come up with anywhere near this look and and this i think this was an interesting look the, the the kids were gravitating towards oh these female characters are actually wearing armor 
they are much more like warriors, but they're obviously cute fashion warriors. And so <laughs> the perfect combination. Yeah, I want that exactly. to be the new tagline for the show. Cute fashion warriors. <laughs> We're going to slay our enemies in style. Exactly. You know? I love it. Yeah. And so I, I tried to keep that in in the figures themselves. I was not able to afford the vacuum metalizing that was on the original figures. Um, and I, it was interesting because I cheated when I made these. I I took I took uh, uh, a film like th- that you use to to do wrapping paper, like a cellophane type film. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I would. I took that and I took spray mount and I sprayed it down to clear plastic and then I vacuum formed the shapes and it actually stayed. I wasn't sure if it would work, and that's how I made these. And um and the funny thing is some of the edging where it looks like um. They all have it, actually, where it looks like uh, uh, a very particular type of armor. It's um, I forgot the name of it. It it almost looks like feathers, but it's that overlapping armor. And um, the funny thing is that was actually the background. Scale mail. Thank you. That's it. That's it. Um, It was actually the background of of the uh, vacuum former where it pulled the air through the net, the netting, and it actually gave this great effect. So I, I used the little you know, basic chest pieces and then I augmented it with those because they had so much great detail on them. I just, I just loved it. Um, now I think that we're going to have to point out specifically which armor pieces you're looking at because not being able to see it, like I'm trying to picture the photo that we're looking at. Um, yes. So I think you're going to have to include that in, either in an email or, or describe exactly which photo you're looking at. I will set this aside and make sure and send you a photograph of it because yes, I'm looking directly at it. Okay. These, these are made. These are made from the Disney musical princesses, um, and they're all they're actually standing on their jewel stones. I used those as the stands at the time, but which I thought would be really really cool too. But that had to go away for cost. Um, but they're they're still i mean i'm looking at them now and i'm still going wow these are just fun and different yeah that might be a new photograph that we actually haven't seen before because the only prototype that we've seen is the jasmine guinevere with the flipping merlin that's the only like character prototype that we've ever seen oh i got okay i'll send you pictures yes we're so excited Uh, yeah yeah as a matter of fact, I wanted to ask you about some other pictures later because I found some other stuff that I can't remember if it was used or not. But yeah, uh, let's let's finish the story of this. So from here, cost is very, very important. I couldn't afford the vacuum metalizing, but I could make the armor crystal. And I could make it out of K-resin. I could put some tinting with it, and it could still have a glowing effect. And... What I ended up doing was I I wanted the armor to become a visual manifestation of the jewel magic. And so that's why the armor always matched the jewel, because that was the magic sent out from the jewel. It armored up Guinevere, or armored up Alex. I'm sorry, armored up Fallon. Fallon. and so I was very conscious to keep that in anything I did. And I also tried as best I could to make pieces that you could lay on top of each other, um, which you can with several of these. Um, you know, and it's well, interesting when you're talking about the different types of, like, fabric types, the types of metals that you were looking at using. And I think that, you know, just creating something that is actually going to be achievable at mass production by a toy company, but yet still tell that story of magic and armor. Um, I Obviously, we love the way that the final product came out. And when we're talking about the fashion, though, you had mentioned, you know, yes, the um, the different types of mail or, or, you know, the different types of um, armor might not have been from that era. I mean, you know, that's the thing about a lot of these properties as animation is that they aren't historically accurate. They're just set in this 
magical once upon a time. That doesn't mean it was, you know, hundreds of years ago. That could be a hundred years ago. That could be 500 years ago. It could be a thousand years ago. It's just once upon a time. And I think that the same thing is said for jewel writers. But if you could give us a quick kind of explanation, especially from a theatrical background, is there kind of an inspiration that you drew from whether it was time periods or people or was this even inspired by just the fashion of the 90s like what inspired the general look well because of when you're doing it you can't help but be inspired by what's around you at the time but the very first step of what i used to start creating all of these looks was medieval books on armor and and there's different parts of armor that that are being used. Like if you look at, um, well, let me get some pictures out. Mm-hmm. So year one, Guinevere. Okay, so the main three characters had basically shoulder armor and gauntlets, or right. in the case of Tamara, she had armbands, and then they all had a I couldn't stand having just another comb that gets lost. Like, how many Barbie combs do you really need? <laughs> I actually I threw away two Barbie combs yesterday because it's like, anyway, didn't need any more. Um, and so I wanted to use also that piece of plastic, that money. I used every cent I could and, and used, made a shield that was also the comb. And they also had, um, Tamara had snap-on greaves. Yes. Okay. And then, of course, they all had the headpieces that would flip back and forth. If you go to looking at Sun Power Guinevere, which was one of my favorites, she was one really cool. One of my cool. favorites as well. Oh, cool. Um, it's interesting. If you look at the, I'm looking at the catalog shot right now, and that body, at least the lower part of that body, is is actually one of the um, princesses one of the musical princesses because notice that her knees are not bent the same way. Um, Hmm. It's kind of funny. Okay. Um, But on her, I went with a different point of armor. So that one was more of a, almost like a bustier, but it had the bottom shape of armor that's on some of the armor from just before the Renaissance period time. And if you snap that, you could snap that same piece of armor on. Actually, you could snap the armor, the shoulder armor from the normal Princess Guinevere on top of that. And then she had even more armor, which was kind of cool. And it was very common in the medieval that you would have a headdress that you could put a crown onto. So I molded her head specifically that way so you could put a crown on it. And then she had a plug of hair out the back of it. But even if you look at her side, I know that there's a name for those, and I can't think of it, but those were incredibly medieval. That outfit that she's wearing is very, very medieval. Well, actually, the sleeves specifically, but the sleeves were hiding something. Let's go back to sleeves in a second. But on her head, there was... Oh, that uh, netted piece, the one that goes over the head. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know the name of it. Yes. I, I made that very specifically that way, and unfortunately... I didn't get to put the wrap on the figure because that's not the way it was supposed to go. Oh, do tell, because as a child, that thing was horrible. Like you would put it on and like it would just pop off because the the crown, the tiara that was on top was not strong enough to keep it down. No, and it was never meant to be. It was it was really meant to be a scarf, a glorified scarf around her neck. Um, I gotcha. So uh, it wasn't meant to be put around her head. Yeah, it really it wasn't, wasn't meant to be tied like a Jackie O scarf around <laughs> her head. Well, it had a little loop on it because I, I had to, it was like back to, you know, there was there was pennies on these I was trying to save. Actually, let me, let me sidestep a story for a second. On the main Guinevere doll, her, her margin was, let's say, 28.9. Or 28.9, it was 28.95 and it had to be 30. And there was nothing else to take off on this doll. I mean, nothing to hit that. And so I tried to explain to my director at the time, look, there's nothing else to take it. 
we're only doing rough costing here. When it goes to Asia, they'll give us real costing. I don't care. I need that to be 30. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so I went, I went back to the costing director and said, look, I can't budge him. You and I have worked on this. There's nothing else to take on this. What do you recommend? He looks at it, changes the number, goes, hey, look, you got it to 30. <laughs> what did, so he just faked it. He didn't really he faked it because okay. it was fake to begin with. It's yeah. it's not like we were, but it was that close. That's like anyone anyone normal instead of this particular boss would have looked at it and said, "Close enough, let's go with it." But he he was particular. Well, that's again those leaders yeah. that are more financially oriented, which I guess is great as a director, but. Also, you need to let the creatives, you know, do their work and then make adjustments later. Exactly. And, and it was like you could never understand that what we were doing at this point was rough. Once it went to Asia, it was going to change a little bit more. So, If you enjoyed this episode with Greg, tune in again on August 10th for our fourth interview with him. If you want to find more about the Jewel Writers Archive, you can find us at www.jewelwritersarchive.com or on any social media at Jewel Writers Archive. If you want to find out more about Greg's work in the toy industry, you can find his blog, 12 Inch Treasures, linked in the podcast notes below. And remember, friends together, friends forever. Bye, everyone.